This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Moilothi McLean and tonight, taking us through the crisis in Gaza, I'm going to be joined by Ash Sakar. Thanks for having me, Moya. Thank you for coming on for maybe the third time this week to talk about such harrowing stories. Um, and coming up later tonight, we'll be discussing the increasing settler violence that is taking place in the West Bank. We'll also be touching on protest crackdowns across Israel and Germany. And the UK's counter-extremism advisor says something pretty extreme. Let's go to our first story. Israel has continued to bombard Gaza overnight as the assault on the Palestinian territory enters its 13th day. This drone footage shows all that's left of residential buildings in Al-Zahara city, just south of Gaza city. In total, five residential buildings were flattened with nearly 100 families left homeless. Al-Zahara is north of the Wadi Gaza bridge. That means it's in an area that Israel ordered residents to evacuate last week forcing them to relocate to the southern regions of the territory. But they're not safe there either. Khan Yunus in the south of Gaza has come under repeated bombing this week. Fresh assaults last night caused large-scale devastation in a city that's become a base for thousands of Palestinians fleeing south for safety. Eleven residential buildings were destroyed. 70-year-old Rafayat al-Nakal is one of those who fled. He told Reuters this. There's absolutely no difference between Gaza City, Rafa, Khan Yunus, between the south, the north, the east, or the west. They brought us to the south, and it's been strikes every day. Every day there are martyrs in massive numbers. There's nowhere safe in Gaza. You have to be ready to die. According to the Gazan Health Authority, 101 Palestinians were killed in Gaza last night. Israel's relentless bombardment has brought the death toll into the territory of nearly 3,500 people. Over 12,000 people have been injured. More than half of Gaza's population are children, and they are being hit particularly hard by the attacks. Israel has now reportedly killed over 1,500 Gazan children. According to NGO Defence for Children, that amounts to one child killed every 15 minutes since the war began. Gaza is not just being bombed, though, it's also under siege. Food, water, power and medicines are running out, and doctors are having to improvise. British-Palestinian surgeon Ghassan Abu Sitter was on site when a missile hit the Al-Lali hospital on Tuesday. This morning, he posted this. Vinegar from the corner shop to reach pseudonymous infections. It's come to that. Food is also in short supply in the Gaza Strip. But reports have emerged that Israel is deliberately targeting bakeries in their airstrikes. It's been reported that five so far have been destroyed, causing a large number of casualties and making it even more difficult and dangerous for Palestinians to access food. Despite the increasing barbarity of the assault, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has travelled to Israel to express solidarity with Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. His visit follows US President Joe Biden's deployment to the region. This is what Sunak told Netanyahu at a joint press conference. I know that you are taking every precaution to avoid harming civilians in direct contrast to the terrorists of Hamas, which seek to put civilians in harm's way. But I also want to thank you for the support that your government has given to the families of British nationals caught up in this horror, including your efforts to release 
the hostages, secure their release. And I know that we will continue to cooperate, particularly with regard to the British nationals that are involved. Can I also say that we have seen the scenes over the past day that have shocked all of us, particularly at the hospital, and we mourn the loss of every innocent life, civilians of every faith, every nationality who have been killed. And we also recognize that the Palestinian people are victims of Hamas too. And that is why I welcome your decision yesterday that you took to ensure that routes into Gaza will be opened for humanitarian aid to enter. I'm glad that you made that decision. We will support it. We're increasing our aid to the region and we will look to get more support to people as quickly as we can. Uh, the last thing for me to close on is this. You describe this as Israel's darkest hour. Well, then it's for me to say I'm proud to stand here with you in Israel's darkest hour as your friend. We will stand with you in solidarity. We will stand with your people. And we also want you to win. Pathetic little line at the end. We want you to win. Ash, doesn't that just say it all? It absolutely does say it all. One of the things which feels so galling about the events of the last week and a half is that what's going on is being described as an Israel-Hamas war. Now, Israel and Hamas are the combatants, but this is a war which is being waged on the people of Palestine. We can see that in terms of the sheer scale of the destruction in Gaza. The Economist was reporting that as many as one in 20 buildings in Gaza have been destroyed by the recent bombardment. The collective punishment, which has involved cutting off aid, cutting off food, cutting off water, cutting off power, uh, is something which has been visited upon the heads of every single person in Gaza, not Athens. And then when you look at what's going on in the West Bank, you have heightened settler violence. There's been footage released by Betzalem of an Israeli settler shooting a Palestinian all while effectively enjoying the, prote the protection of an IDF soldier. You've got increasing numbers of Palestinians being taken into military custody, often on very flimsy pretexts. So this is not an Israel-Hamas war. This is an Israel war which is being waged against the entirety of the Palestinian people. And when Rishi Sunak, our prime minister, is saying, we want you to win, that is at the cost of Palestinian civilians, not just at the cost of the organization of Hamas. And I think that what's, um, what's most galling about this entire affair is that we're a country that talks an awful lot, particularly in recent years because of the invasion of Ukraine, about the importance of upholding international law. When Putin launched airstrikes which targeted civilian infrastructure whether that was in Syria, whether that was in Ukraine, that was called out for what it was, which is a war crime. Now, Israel has announced its intention to target civilian infrastructure. It then has targeted that civilian infrastructure. Israel announced its intention to launch a campaign of collective punishment against the Gazan people. And then it did launch that campaign of collective punishment against the Gazan people. And still... Our government upholds this absurd fiction that the IDF are somehow operating with constraint. They're not. They're plainly not. And that 
two, the IDF is operating within the boundaries of international law. Now, before we even get to the question of the hospital, uh, which was struck by an explosive, uh, there's some interesting new material that's come out from Channel 4 News and also Al Jazeera. I would encourage people to take a look at it. But before we even get to that, hospitals have been shelled. Um, hospitals are suffering because of the lack of supplies. Hospitals are running out of power. Now, how are, how is anybody supposed to believe in the integrity of international law or trust Western nations as keepers and custodians of international law if this is what is being given the carte blanche by first Biden and now Rishi Sunak? It's an absolute travesty. And I think it's going to have wider geopolitical repercussions. Reports are emerging today of G7 diplomats reporting that global South countries, after having very recently and very tentatively been persuaded about the Ukrainian cause, are now saying, well, how can any of you talk about international law? Look at what you've just co-signed in Palestine. And there's an awful lot of truth to that. If we can recognize that what Putin has done is commit war crimes in Ukraine, in waging this war of aggression, in targeting civilian infrastructure, then you have to apply the same standard to Israel. But we're not, for reasons which I think are a combination of ideological and geopolitical. And I think that the the cost of that in terms of um, the reputation of Britain on the international stage, it will be irreparable. Um, I think that in in many ways, this is going to be the war on terror plus the war on terror drove an absolute coach and horses, uh, you know, through through the rules of war and through the international order. And I think that this latest offensive in Gaza is really tap dancing on the ashes. Yeah, I completely agree. When when you were talking about uh, the the condemn, condemnation of breaking international law by these uh, diplomats in the global south, what I was thinking most of all is that in a world where you cannot rely on individual conscience or this straight definition of morality, unfortunately what we fall back on is humanitarian law. It's not perfect, it's not objective, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. But undermining any form of collective charter of you know human rights something that some home secretary Soella Bravman is trying to do in the UK this simply means that being able to rely on humanitarian law to be able to subs- get international um signees to subscribe to international law and actually adhere to it is going to be harder than ever now that we have so blatantly disregarded it. And the people that will suffer most are not going to be the people like Rishi Sunak. It's going to be the people who need the protection of that humanitarian law, aka like the people in Gaza. Um, well, as well as overtly picking a side, there was absolutely no mention of a ceasefire or pushing for a ceasefire in Sunak's speech. There was also no mention of returning running water to Palestinians in Gaza as a massive health crisis unfolds. Sunak did mention humanitarian aid, though. He congratulated the Israeli state on allowing that aid through. Uh, That actually hasn't happened yet. Netanyahu has pledged to allow supplies to enter Gaza via Egypt, but because of heavy Israeli shelling at the Rafah crossing, no trucks have been able to cross thanks to damaged roads. They are now expected to take several days to repair. Those repairs have still not begun. And just to put into context what Rishi Sunak is endorsing when he says, we want you to win, when he speaks for the UK. And so Gaza's uh, existence as a territory has also come into question because speaking on Israel's army radio on Wednesday, Israel Foreign Minister uh, Eli Cohen said this, according to The Telegraph. 
At the end of this war, not only will Hamas no longer be in Gaza, but the territory of Gaza will also decrease. If you need that spelling out, those words are suggesting that Israel intends to annex at least part of the occupied Gazan territory. Ash, critics have been cautioning, you know, urging this caution over the use of the term ethnic cleansing. Seems completely undeniable to me at this point that Israel's policy is way beyond, you know, returning hostages and is simply ethnic cleansing and annexing territory. I think what we've seen in terms of Israel's behavior towards the Palestinians is that there's been a slow motion process of ethnic cleansing for decades now. 1948, the Nakba, that was a form of ethnic cleansing. The expansion of settlements into uh, you know, the occupied Palestinian territories, that is a form of ethnic cleansing. And with every subsequent bombardment of Gaza since 2007, which of course creates more displaced people, it forces more people to make a choice between their homeland, the land of their ancestors, and seeking safety elsewhere, these are all things which encourage the displacement of one particular ethnic population. Now, when it comes to the so-called evacuation order, which was given last week, the Norwegian Refugee Council were very clear, this amounts to the crime of forcible transfer, because what it's doing is saying, okay, there's one way out to reach safety. You are going to have to leave this particular area of land uh, under threat of bombardment and there's no guarantee you can come back. That is forcible transfer. It is not a humanitarian evacuation order. Now, of course, this this so-called promise of safety in the South never materialized. And I think what we're seeing in terms of the consistent aerial bombardment of Gaza with very little, if any, consideration for differentiating between militant and civilian infrastructure is that it is designed to make conditions as unlivable as possible for everyone in Gaza. So this isn't just about Hamas combatants. This is very much about the civilians of Gaza as well. Um, negotiations have been taken have taking place, uh, you know, involving the Egyptian government, where it's being reported that there is an offer of debt forgiveness by the United States in return for taking in some portion or perhaps all of the displaced people of Gaza. Now, that's not a humanitarian corridor, though of course everyone should have the right to flee to a safer place when bombs are being rained down upon them. This is the facilitation of ethnic cleansing. Uh, it's saying, okay, that you will not be able to have safety in this given territory. The people who are responsible for laying siege to that territory and manning a blockade on it uh, for well over a decade and a half, um, you know, they're, they're washing their hands of you also. That is most certainly ethnic cleansing. And I think that this has been one of the things which, which forms such an important part of the context to what we've been seeing over the last week and a half, which is, yes, vengeance for what took place on October the 7th is a part of it. Um, yes, there is a vast amount of anger amongst you know the Israeli electorate for what happened. And I think that uh, this this war of of rage and of, of bloodlust and of vengeance is one way of Netanyahu's government um, pinning the entirety of the blame 
onto the Palestinians rather than answering for the security failures, which resulted in this massive, massive breach of, of one of the most securitized states in the world. Um, it's what we're seeing is the result of, I think, an Israeli state which has hardened itself and prepared itself for accelerating this process of ethnic cleansing. The mainstream of Israeli politics is talking about annexation. That's no longer just simply a fringe idea. The Oslo Accords are dead in the water and have been for a long time, precisely because the Israeli state had absolutely no interest in upholding or implementing it. And these are the kinds of conditions which allow organizations like Hamas to thrive. Because if you're an ordinary Palestinian and you've been living your life under decades of blockade, which have meant that there are very few avenues for legitimate shipments of goods to, to enter the enclave, if every few years you're having to deal with bombardment from a far more technologically uh, well-kitted-out military power, is that going to lend you towards the path of democratic transition, peaceful negoci negotiation, or is that something that's going to radicalize you? And I was discussing this with a friend today. I was, I was talking about the sort of odd relationship uh, that Netanyahu has had with Hamas uh, as, as recently as 2018. He was saying to the members of his party that, look, if, if, if you want to inhibit the cause of a Palestinian state, you have to provide some kind of backing to Hamas, uh, you know, politically, financially. I think that they've seen the sort of uh, the bedding in of Hamas and the choking off of democratic alternatives in the Gaza Strip as part and parcel of that ethnic cleansing. It accelerates the cycle of military incursion and bombardment because it's presented as a self-defense response to the activities of Hamas. It's actually in 2019, I believe, that Netanyahu most recently was recorded as supporting Hamas as a way to thwart a Palestinian state. While the world's gaze is fixed on Gaza, violence has also been ramping up in the occupied West Bank territory. Earlier this year, the United Nations reported that 700,000 Israeli settlers are living illegally in nearly 300 settlements across the West Bank. These settlements displace Palestinian communities living in the occupied territories. Following the 7th of October attacks by Hamas on southern Israel, Palestinians in the West Bank say settler violence is increasing. At least 61 Palestinians in the occupied West Bank have been killed in the past 12 days at the hands of Israeli forces or armed settlers. Navara Media published this report today. Daisy Schofield spoke to Palestinians living in the West Bank who believe Israeli settlers are using the crisis in Gaza as an opportunity to seize more land. From the report. Settlers have been breaking into properties, bulldozing homes and water wells, cutting off electricity and burning tents with greater frequency than usual. At least two Palestinian villages are reported to have been entirely depopulated by settlers forcing residents to leave. Sources who spoke to Schofield said that the Israeli government and military have supported the escalation of settler violence and land clearance. 
Israel's security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, has pledged to provide settlers with 10,000 rifles. Settlers already have the highest rates of licensed gun ownership among the Israeli population. Earlier today, I spoke to Issa Amru, a Palestinian human rights activist living in Hebron in the West Bank. I started by asking him what the current situation on the ground is. What is happening in the West Bank during the, uh, the war in, on Gaza that Israeli settlers are uh, using the opportunity where everybody's attention is on Gaza and the war there to uh, attack Palestinians, to uh, displace Palestinians from their uh, land, from their homes, from their properties, to occupy Palestinian uh, properties. I'm in my house and I'm, I'm really terrified and I was asked to leave. Many, 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 many other Palestinian families left uh, from H2 in Hebron, from Area C and from the communities which the Israeli settlers were dreaming that they transfer the Palestinians. So in Gaza, we have an official Israeli government dis displacement policy. And in West Bank, we see that there is an unofficial displacement policy for the Palestinians who are living in the targeted areas in, in, in West Bank, uh, brutality of the army. We are in lockdown. Uh, I'm in curfew. Palestinians are not able to walk from one house to another. I didn't see my neighbors since uh, October 7th. Uh, everybody's looked in uh, his house. Around us is only soldiers and settlers in uh, army uh, uniform. So what is happening in West Bank? They are scaling up the violence of the settlers without any protection from the Israeli military. In Hebrew, for example, they occupied new Palestinian private uh, properties, as well as many other areas in South Mount Hebron and in Area C. You mentioned there that you can't leave your West Bank home. Is that an official part of the official curfew that's been handed down? Or is that in response to something that's happened recently to you? Uh, the closure in, in West Bank, it's an official Israeli government uh, lockdown on Palestinians. So the Palestinian cities are divided from each other. Palestinian communities are dividing from uh, are divided from each other. So Palestinians didn't go to work in West Bank since uh, October 7th. They didn't go to school. They didn't go to universities. The life is completely shut off because of what is happening uh, on Gaza. Not it, it's only it's not only Israeli government and military official lockdown and curfew. It's more than that. The Israeli government know what's going on in West Bank, and the Israeli soldiers see what's what's going on, but they don't prevent Israeli settlers from attacking Palestinians, from taking over Palestinian properties, and from intimidating and ter terrifying Palestinian families to leave. Settlers in army uniform, which means they joined the army, they went to my neighbors, they came to me, and they told us, you should leave or we will kill you on the night. Uh, so many Palestinian families from my neighborhood here, they left their homes because they are afraid about their children and about their uh, women. And for sure, the Israeli government knows about it. And uh, the Israeli government, they are the, the majority of them are, are settlers or led by, by settlers uh, as uh, Itamar Bingwir, the Israeli national security minister who is from Hebron, and the Israeli uh, treasurer uh, minister and a minister in the Israeli defense. They are very infamous of targeting Palestinian communities in, in the West Bank and encouraging settler violence and uh, even justifying it. Where have the Palestinians who've been displaced in this most recent round of clearances by the settlers, where have they gone? The Palestinians uh, who left their communities in Area C were documenting around 500 Palestinians 
left. Another 20 communities are leaving now. In my city here in Hebron, half of the families left their homes. The majority of Palestinians, they go to stay with their uh, relatives. They go to stay with friends. They try to, who has money, they go and rent uh, other uh, houses to protect uh, themselves. It's estimated between 61 and 64 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since the 7th of October. How have these people died? Many Palestinians started protesting against uh, the war in Gaza and against uh, targeting uh, civilians. The Israeli army is using live ammunition against uh, Palestinian uh, protesters all over West Bank. So many Palestinians were killed by the Israeli military. Uh, other Palestinians were killed by Israeli uh, settlers uh, who attacked Palestinians in uh, their homes, in their uh, uh, communities as Kosra. Around six to seven Palestinians were killed by the settlers' weapons. And now we don't distinguish between the guns of the settlers and the guns of the soldiers because the settlers are, you know, uh, dressing as soldiers. They are in army uniform. My neighbor settlers, who are very fanatic, very extreme, will know that they are very, very uh, far right wing. I see them all the time with, the, with their weapons, with their army uniform, scaring me, terrifying me, threatening me, breaking into my property here and damaging some uh, stuff here inside my property. So the settlers, they are, you know, the, the front line of attacking Palestinian communities uh, without any real excuse. Would you say that the settlers who have been previously considered an extension of the Israeli colonial project have now fully been morphed into the security forces? Yes, uh, the Israeli settlers who are uh, now living in West Bank, they are carrying guns. As what happened in Twani, South Mount Hebron, Israeli settlers went to the mosque last Friday and shot one Palestinian. And uh, other settlers uh, are joining the Israeli military to oppress the Palestinians and suppress uh, Palestinians and intimidate them and terrify them to force them to leave their homes or to kill them even and revenge from uh, Palestinians. So in West Bank, the Israeli settlers and the Israeli government is not uh, making any kind of security. It's about political attitude of the Israeli government toward Palestinians and a political attitude of the Israeli fanatic extreme settlers toward Palestinians. Obviously, the Israeli government claims that their only aim in this, what they're calling a war with Hamas, uh, is to wipe out Hamas and return hostages taken into Gaza. Do their actions in the West Bank contradict this? Yes, the, the actions in the West Bank and the actions in Gaza Strip contradicts what Israel is aiming. How come they are bombing Gaza where, when the hostages are there? Are they afraid about their lives or not? I am afraid about their lives, to be very honest with you, as I'm afraid about the lives of the civilians in, in Gaza. In the same way, in the West Bank, we have the Palestinian Authority. It's not Hamas. But in the same time, lockdown, curfew, violence, life ammunition, brutality of the Israeli army, huge amount of violence from the Israeli uh, settlers. And uh, so... It's about, as Sisi said in, in his, uh, the, uh, president, the Egyptian president, Israel is working to displace Palestinians from, Ga from, West, uh, from Gaza to Egypt, and they are working unofficially to, to displace Palestinians from West Bank to Jordan to uh, have uh, their own one state from the river to the sea without the Palestinians. This is what they want. This is their ultimate goal. This is their future planning. This is what they are doing, and this is what the Israeli... Uh, officials announced as Smotrich and Bingvir and other other Israeli lawmakers. They announced it openly to the media 
that they want to whip Huwara, they want to whip a Palestinian village near Nablus, they want to whip Palestinians from the West Bank as well, they want to whip the Palestinians, civilians from uh, Gaza. It's the same war, it's a war on all the Palestinian, we call it, project. It's about, about our rights, it's about our, uh, our, our future, our dreams of freedom and justice and equality, and we say all the time, we want to be treated as a, as a nation who deserve full equality, full freedom, and uh, justice and accountability for the occupiers. We are not looking for, we are not animals, as we were described by many Israeli officials. We are not looking for shelters. We are looking for a real equality with our, uh, you know, friends, our brothers and sisters all over the world, and even equality within this region. Obviously, as well as Israeli forces suppressing protest in the West Bank, Palestinian security forces have been involved in uh, cracking down on protest. Why is that? What's the context there? The Palestinian Authority, unfortunately, since very long time, is acting as a subcontractor of the Israeli occupation. Politically, a few of them, they do well, but others, they don't. And they are infamous of their... Uh, violence toward Palestinian protesters and many Palestinian protesters are very angry from the Palestinian security forces and from the Palestinian leadership in the West Bank for not supporting enough the people in Gaza and not uh, you know uh, having a real stance uh, to stop the massacres and to stop the settler violence and to stop the blind support of many many countries uh, all over the world to 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 Israel and just just to finish off for Palestinians who are in the West Bank, has this, you know, military assault on Gaza, has it reignited the feeling of a united Palestine, one people? We usually, as Palestinians, uh, are united among us as uh, normal civilians. We never had any kind of uh, disagreement or division. That division is only between uh, leaders uh, and between uh, political parties. Uh, but uh, now all human beings all over the world are united with Gaza to stop the massacre and to stop the killing of the, the civilians. Always, always when you see civilians are killed, you show sympathy and you feel united with them. Me personally, I feel united with the Syrians, with the Libyans, with the Yemenis, uh, with Ukraine. So I, I really want all civilians in the world be protected and not suffer as we are suffering in, in our homes, in our land, in our communities here in West Bank and Gaza Strip and even in East Jerusalem. As Issa and I discussed just there, it's not just Israel suppressing protests in the West Bank. Palestinian security forces clashed with protesters in Ramallah on Tuesday, firing tear gas and stun grenades. People had gathered to express frustration with the Palestinian Authority's strategy of coordinating with Israeli security measures in the territory. Palestinian security forces also cracked down on dissent in Nablus, Tubas and Jenin. They're sadly not alone. Crackdowns on protests are equally intense in Israel. One small pro-Palestine rally held in Haifa on Israel, in Israel on Wednesday was shut down by Israeli police within minutes of people gathering. Here's footage of the police response captured by a reporter from news organization Arab 48. (laughs) 
Over 100 Israeli police were deployed to that area in that tiny gathering of protesters and reports from Palestinian citizens who were present say that the police were armed with both firearms and a water cannon. Times of Israel later reported that six people were arrested and one person was wounded in the operation. Meanwhile, the Israeli police commissioner, Kobi Shabati, gave this statement. Whoever wants to be a citizen of Israel, ahan wasalam, which is Arabic slang for welcome. Anyone who wants to identify with Gaza is welcome. I'll put them on buses that will send them there. I'll help them get there. There will be zero tolerance for any instance of incitement. There will be no authorization for protests. Israel is in a state of war. We're not in a situation where we will allow all sorts of people to come and test us. Just to be clear there, he is saying there is going to be no protests allowed in Israel showing solidarity with Palestine. And unfortunately, it seems like some European countries are following Shabati's lead. Pro-Palestine protests in Germany have faced a brutal response from the authorities. Demonstrations in Frankfurt and Berlin have been banned at short notice. And meanwhile, a huge police presence has been deployed to neighbourhoods in the German capital with large Middle Eastern diaspora populations. This is a video shared by investigative journalist Alexander Dinger. That showed German police in Zonialli in Wednesday, an area of Berlin home to many Middle Eastern immigrants. Those on the receiving end of that crackdown have been reporting it via social media. This is Berlin-based journalist Ben Mauck after being pepper sprayed by police at that Wednesday rally. Mauck said on X, formerly Twitter, that he and others in the crowd were sprayed deliberately after police began to beat a young man holding a Palestinian flag. Ben captured footage of the beginning of that inciting incident. The violence of that. Um, after that video ends, Mark said that several police tackled the young man and, quote, put him against a car and began to beat him. An officer pepper sprayed him, then turned to spray the crowd filming. As you can see from that video, that young man was just standing there holding a pro-Palestine flag. In the Netherlands, they've the Court of Appeal has just legally protected pro-Palestine chants such as from the river to the sea. But in Germany, they are beating people for holding flags. Ash, what is going on? I think that there is a very simple reason for why you see these kinds of crackdowns in Germany. When you look at the sort of public receptiveness to criticism of Israel, pro-Palestinian messaging, it's very, very low. You do have instances where people have been essentially forced out of their jobs for articulating criticism of Israel or articulating solidarity with the Palestinian people and the Palestinian cause. The reason for this is that I think Germany, because of its 
historic atrocities towards the Jewish people, its role in nearly exterminating the Jewish population of Europe, has this very deep sense of shame and wants to be the first to stamp out any hint of anti-Semitism or what is being called anti-Semitism by Israel and its advocates abroad. And I think this is a point which has been made by Barnaby Rain, who was, of course, on the show last night many times, which is this is one way, yet another way, in which Palestinians have been made to pay for the crimes of Europeans. First, it's being displaced in order to make a homeland for those refugees who escaped the most terrible genocide uh, in, in European history. And secondly, by having its cause, the cause of Palesti Palestinian liberation, the cause of getting Israel to adhere uh, to international law, having that cause being smeared as anti-Semitic. And Germany, because of its Nazi history, is, I think, particularly inclined to act on that accusation and crack down in a way which is deeply authoritarian and troubling for anyone who is, uh, I mean, just just basically in favor of the liberal principle of free expression. And when it comes to that liberal principle of free expression, you know, we have to discuss the slogan from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Because what we've been seeing in recent days is that everybody from Andrew Neil to Suella Braverman is saying this is an inherently eliminationist and anti-Semitic chant. Now, I disagree with that. I disagree with that because I think that from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free is a very basic description of geographic reality. Palestinian territories of Gaza and the occupied West Bank exist between the Mediterranean Sea and the West Bank of the River Jordan. And whether it's the occupied West Bank, whether it's East Jerusalem, whether it's Arab-Israeli citizens who experience discrimination, or whether it's civilians in the Gaza Strip, none of those people exist with their rights, with their political freedoms, being respected. So the call to from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. It is perfectly coherent with a two-state solution, a democratic one-state solution, and the safety and integrity of Jewish people who also live between the river and the sea in the state of Israel. But it's being cast as an eliminationist and anti-Semitic chant, one, I think, to curtail the ability of people to articulate solidarity with the Palestinian cause. And two, I think that it is an act of projection. There is only one state here that is pursuing an eliminationist policy, and that is the state of Israel. But it is, it is a shifting of that responsibility, a shifting of that reality onto the Palestinian people who have been oppressed and disempowered for decades. I mean, we will be talking a bit more about the reactions to the chant from the river to the sea in our next story. This is Robin Simcox, the UK's counter-extremism commissioner. In the wake of widespread protests across the UK in support of Palestine, he's appeared on Radio 4's Today programme, where he said this. 
you think that people are expressing their support for the plight of Palestinian people are sometimes crossing a line, do you? Or being exploited, perhaps, yeah, by think, other groups and indeed other countries. I think both. And I think that the, the scenes you saw in, in London last weekend is a pretty stark example of that. Of course, I'm not saying every person that was out on the street that weekend was there in support of Hamas. Um, obviously, the, the Palestinian cause is one that a lot of human rights groups, for example, are, are involved with. But you also see um, banners... Uh, the, the the paragliders that people are wearing on their jackets clearly a, a signal of support for the kind of uh, the paragliders that Hamas used in the attack in Israel, um, and also things like some of the chants, right? River to the sea, Palestine will be free. Now, if you'd talked to me two weeks ago about that, Nick, I would have I know what my view would have been, but I would have maybe been more alive to the nuances and the caveats. I think in the context of the largest slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust, that takes on a different meaning. But do you think to many of the people chanting it, they have any idea what the meaning is? That they, isn't it possible they just think they're in favour of freeing Palestine rather than saying eradicate Israel as a safe place for Jews? I mean, it's of course, and I can't get into the heads of every person chanting that, but I think it's harder to sustain that in the context of what's just happened. Now, the question then is what you do about it. And in your case, you're advising the Home Secretary. That's why you were appointed. What should she do? Now, we saw front pages from the Home Secretary saying, arrest these people. And I was tempted to say, who's the person in charge? The police. She is the Home Secretary. So why aren't they arresting people? Yeah, and and obviously this is going to be something which the the police and Crown Prosecution Service are going to be working through because it's obviously... There's no point making mass arrests if it's not something that can be sustained in the courts, right? There's got to be suspicion of a law being broken. But you as an advisor would want them to look at that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I love the quality of media in this country where the uh, excuse for actually interviewing someone is just saying, why aren't they arresting people, you know, using expressions of free speech? There was a call on both sides there for the state to clamp down on expressions of Palestinian solidarity. And as we've talked about a bit about previously with Ash just now, chanting a slogan that is used all over the world to call for Palestinian freedom is now apparently a sign of radicalization. I'm just going to be very, I'm just going to reiterate it for you. From the river to the sea isn't a chant that has been adopted en masse to call for the elimination of Israel and Israeli Jews. Today, the phrase is most commonly used to highlight that Palestinians are not afforded equal rights with Jewish Israelis anywhere between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, aka not in Gaza, not in the West Bank, and not in Israel. That has not stopped Simcox, though. Writing in the Times, he was even more explicit. In the aftermath of the single worst atrocity perpetrated against Jewish people since the Holocaust, tens of thousands of British citizens went online and took to the streets not to mourn the innocent victims, but to voice support for the, quote, Palestinian resistance. Whatever chants such as, quote, long live the Palestinian resistance or, quote, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, might arguably have meant three weeks ago. Their deployment in the aftermath of October the 7th takes on precise operational clarity. Death to Jews and the erasure of Israel from the map. Except, doesn't do that. He goes on to say this. Some of those whose jubilation and support for Hamas's pogrom was literal and explicit have rightly been arrested but the overwhelming majority have been careful to construe their public displays of support just below the legal threshold for hate crime, glorification of terror, or public order offences. They are successfully exploiting one of our proudest British values, freedom of expression, to pursue a shameful extremist agenda and the normalisation and promotion of anti-Semitism. 
Yes, I love my British freedom of expression, which means as soon as I repeat a peaceful chant on a solidarity march for a territory that's being bombed to hell, I get accused of extremism. I really, really love that freedom of expression. Um, and, you know, Simcox looked at that peaceful Palestinian solidarity, solidarity march um, and thought instead what we were seeing was tens of thousands of people taking to the street to call for the death of Jews. Of course, people didn't say any such thing. I want to make that very clear. No such thing. I was there. But according to Simcox, that's because all of us on that march had carefully premeditated our speech to avoid committing a hate crime. All 150,000 of us went into a big group chat and said, right, everyone, let's just make sure we keep this just below the threshold for hate crime. Sounds totally plausible. Of course, there's a very telling at an endum to this because Simcox did add a diagnosis for where he thinks this so-called form of extremism comes from. And it's one that we've had many, many times before. The failure of multiculturalism leads to extremism, allowing people to maintain parallel lives in our communities without being part of our communities has produced and will continue to produce the sorts of people committed to extremism and committed to undermining our values. The hatred that we have witnessed in recent days on British streets and online is not only a cause for alarm among the Jewish community, it must be a wake-up call for the government and for all decent people. Just a reminder, this is the man literally paid by the government to advise the government on countering terrorism. And he's out there calling for the suppression of free speech and parroting tied, xenophobic, extreme dog whistles about failed multiculturalism undoing the fabric of our society. Now, it's not just people on the left who found these claims pretty wild. This was, was Security Minister Tom Tugendhat on Times Radio. In the Times today from the Commission for Countering Extremism, which says that Britain has become a permissive environment, a permissive environment for anti-Israel extremism. Do you agree with him? No, I don't agree with that. I think that the United Kingdom is, an is a country and, uh, and an environment in which we take all threats to any communities extremely seriously. And you just have to uh, look at the response over the last 10 days, uh, the way that the Prime Minister, uh, the Home Secretary and I and many others have uh, been uh, reaching out to the Jewish community, making sure that policing is appropriate, visiting uh, areas where the Jewish community is particularly prominent in places like Golders Green, uh, to give reassurance and the way in which we've been engaging as well uh, with the Muslim community, some of whom are feeling also vulnerable at this time and feeling stigmatized. And we're making sure that every citizen of the United Kingdom, everybody who's living in the United Kingdom, feels quite rightly, uh, as they should, safe and able to conduct uh, their well, private life well, as they should. Well, this guy, Robin Simcox, who is a government appointment, he's connected to the Home Office. And this, this has the smack of Suella Braverman's position generally, actually. He says this should be a wake-up call to all decent people, these hate marches, as he calls them. And he says this is down to poor integration and mass migration, a three-decade-long failed policy mix of mass migration and multiculturalism. The failure of multiculturalism in this country has led to an anti-Israeli uh, sentiment being allowed to flourish. Um, if you don't agree with that, are you disappointed he's saying it like that? Look, I think the United Kingdom has demonstrated one of the most remarkable achievements uh, of Western Europe and actually uh, of, of the wider world, where we have got a multi-ethnic society that has, as the Prime Minister put it himself in his conference speech, we have an Indian Prime Minister 
but it doesn't matter. We have a Home Secretary of Indian origin, but it's not relevant. We have a Foreign Secretary of African origin, but that's not what matters about him. The ability for this society, for this community, to bring in people from around the world and to make people not only feel at home, but actually feel not just part of our society, but champions of it, is a remarkable achievement of the United Kingdom and of the British people. Well, I think what we took from that is Simcox thinks that mass migration has led to anti-Israeli sentiment, a very normal and not at all far-right opinion being picked up to use however he wishes and banging whatever drum he wishes. And of course, it goes without saying that Simcox is, you know, banging this old drum of conflating the entire Jewish faith with the Israeli state, which is in itself a very anti-Semitic belief. Um, But who is Robin Simcox? Well, his CV is pretty interesting because before being offered and taking on his counter-extremism role, he was a research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. That's a neoconservative think tank. And he was also a a Margaret Thatcher fellow at the right-wing American think tank, the Heritage Foundation. In 2019, he wrote this article for their website, apparently denying the reality of Islamophobia. Left's use of Islamophobia, a cynical ploy to shut down disagreement. Simcox has also given a speech at the Royal United Services Institute on countering violent extremism. International lawyer Sarah Elizabeth Dill was in the audience, and this was her assessment. At a speech by Robin Simcox on hashtag CVE, it is the most ignorant, Islamophobic, and offensive thing I've heard in years. If I did not have manners, I would walk out. Scary the power and influence this man has on UK government and his clear message on Muslims. That was sent today. It's also worth noting if you go to the publications Simcox has been involved in, almost every single one seems focused on that special word, Islamists. Ash, the Venn diagram of people conflating pro-Palestine sentiment with extremism and people with histories of Islamophobia seems to just be a circle. The question is, do people on the ground buy it? It's always hard to tell what people on the ground really think because when there is a media narrative and it is being rained down upon the heads of people who don't have the same kind of platform, it's just so noisy. It's just so hard to tell what people really think. I mean, what you are seeing in the media, whether it's from Robin Simcox or just recently Sebastian Payne or Andrew Neil, what you see them saying about that march which took place in London last Saturday is a classic establishment media technique. It doesn't matter if you were there. It doesn't matter if you've got a first-hand account. A first-hand account. You are whatever we say you are. So you are pro-Hamas. You are pro-terrorism. You are pro the slaughter of Israeli civilians. It doesn't matter that every single speaker who I saw on that stage, and I attended this protest at this protest in my capacity as a journalist rather than a participant, every single speaker who I saw up on that stage condemned attacks on civilians, unequivocally condemned attacks from civilians. Not once did I hear a pro-Hamas chant. Now, I'm not saying that in a protest of 100,000 people, it would be impossible for someone to have started a pro-Hamas chant. But I was there with other members of the Navarra media team. We started out in the middle of the march. We went to the back for a bit and then we raced up to the front so that we could catch some of the speakers. Having sort of been at the beginning, middle and end of that march, we didn't hear a single pro-Hamas chant. So if there were any, and of course, 
the likes of Andrew Neil are assuring me that there were, they weren't in any part of the march that we saw and we covered an awful lot of it. So it couldn't have been anything more than a tiny, tiny minority of the crowd. But none of this is uh, simply about Palestine solidarity and demonizing the cause of, of Palestine solidarity. It's about, I think, one of the right's favorite hobby horses, which is that increased ethnic and cultural diversity in this country is a bad thing. It seems very odd to me, I think, to use the march on Saturday as an example of failed multiculturalism, because again, Moya, you were there, I was there. It was a very multicultural march. Of course, there are an awful lot of British Muslims there because the Palestine, uh, the Palestinian cause is one which is often very close to the hearts of British Muslims, but it was very, very racially diverse. There was an awful lot of white people there. There was an awful lot of black people there. There was an awful lot of British Asians there. And there were also small but significant contingents of British Jews who were there because they wanted to raise their voice in opposition to ongoing occupation and bombardment. Now, this is an interesting thing about this whole multiculturalism is dangerous, it's failed, there's a lack of integration narrative, which you're seeing from Robin Simcox and Sebastian Payne's also recently written an article about this in the eye, is that when they say multiculturalism is a bad thing, what they mean is ethnic minorities minus Jewish people. Because, of course, Jewish people are one of those multiple cultures who exist in this society. And I think that's a really good thing. Um, Jewish people often, not always, um, of course, there are an awful lot of, of secular and, and non-practicing Jewish people as well. But there's a sizable Jewish community, which has very culturally distinct practices, a strong sense of community. Uh, there is a sizable a Jewish community which doesn't have much interaction with people who aren't part of that community. Now, I happen to think that it's their right to live their lives in the way that they choose, but it's never these people who are being packaged up in this narrative of failed integration. And in fact, there is a conflation of British Jews with the state and the policies and the existence of the state of Israel and the conditions of the state of Israel, which I think is an anti-Semitic conflation. But when it is coming from the conservative right, not only is that conflation permissible, it's 100% encouraged. Now, compare that to how British Muslims are monitored and policed and surveilled. If British Muslims feel a strong affinity with either the countries of uh, their heritage or with the people of Palestine, they're cast as radicals. Um, British Muslims couldn't go off and, and fight for another country. Uh, there, there are laws which, which restrict that in this country, but British Jews are allowed to of course not many do, but are allowed to uh, volunteer for the Israeli Defense Forces. So there's a total double standard when it comes to talking about the failures of multiculturalism, things which are utterly demonized when it comes to British Muslims are tolerated, are permissible, are seen sometimes even as a good thing when it comes to British Jews and the state of Israel. Now, I don't think that's because um, this country doesn't have 
deep problems with anti-Semitism? Of course it does. I think it's because of the strategic geopolitical role that Israel has for Western powers and the way in which Jewish people in the diaspora have been forced into this role of being uh, cheerleaders, supporters for the state of Israel, even when they're not, even when they're not. Because when Jewish people speak up against the Israeli state, when they speak up against the occupation, when they speak up against apartheid, well, then they're demonized as self-hating Jews or even demonized as anti-Semites. So this multiculturalism has failed discourse. It is and always has been a sham. I think that there are criticisms of what you might call state multiculturalism, but the lived multiculturalism that we exist in, you know, the fact that London, Manchester, Birmingham, these are Leeds, these are all cities with huge numbers of ethnic minorities and also these ethnic minorities within themselves tend to be very diverse. Uh, you tend not to have monocultures in the way that you, you see in the United States. If there is, you know, a area in the UK where you'll find a lot of British Asians, that's also going to be where you find immigrants from other cultural backgrounds too. I say that that speaks to the successes of multiculturalism. Um, but I thought it was such an interesting moment when Robin Simcops, you know, heaps praise on Suella Braverman and, and Rishi Sunak. Uh, racial and ethnic difference is fine so long as there is political homogeneity. And I think that shows you just how ideological that narrative is. It's not based in fact. It's based in advancing the cause of reactionary conservatism. Let's move on to our last story. Multiple international NGOs and some in Israel have condemned Israel's bombardment and siege of Gaza, as well as the forcible transfer of up to a million Palestinians from the north to the, of the territory to the south. Some of them have already started using the language of war crimes. Now, Fleur Hassanoum is the deputy mayor of Jerusalem. Here's what she thinks of those judgments. Are you saying also Beit Salem are wrong and they don't know... Yes. How to assess the Categorically. situation? Categorically, okay. they're wrong because okay. we warn, we warn people, we we warn the people of northern Gaza to move to southern Gaza specifically and precisely because we know that the Hamas infrastructure, there's a whole city underground full of weapons, full of rocket, full of lo rocket launchers, and because we didn't want innocent civilians in harm's way, we asked them to move out of the way. So yes, I condemn Amnesty International, which everybody knows is biased and corrupt to its core, and Betselem, who've lost their marbles. Okay, we'll leave the viewers to judge that. I'm wondering, do you also then condemn as biased and lost their marbles 48 UN experts who say, quote, in a statement, we strongly condemn Israel's indiscriminate military attacks against the already exhausted Palestinian people of Gaza. There is no justification for violence that indiscriminately targets innocent civilians, whether by Hamas or Israeli forces. This is absolutely prohibited under international law and amounts to a war crime. Are you telling viewers amnesty is wrong, Beit Salem has lost its marbles, and the UN ex 48 UN experts are also biased and wrong? Well... All you have to do is look at the UN schools in Gaza and the West Bank to know Flo, that you're not answering the, the question. You're not answering the question, Flo. 
Well, you're not you're not well, answering the question. Please answer the question. You're not letting me answer. You're not letting me answer the question and get to my point. What I'm saying is, how can I hold UN so-called experts to any type of expert opinion when they are managing a curriculum that teaches hatred and how to kill Jews, anti-Semitic, and completely obsessed with the right of return, which is the destruction of Israel. Imagine living under a mayor who really truly believes the messages being given out by the Israeli state that, you know, these warnings, we get, we warned, we warned the population they could leave. So the fact they haven't left, the fact they, the fact they haven't left, um, the re, they're being bombed to shit. The fact they haven't left, that's on them. That's because they've stayed. They should have, you know, fought harder to go. They should have evacuated. We allowed them to evacuate. No consideration of the fact they're evacuating from a tiny, hugely densely populated territory. No consideration of the fact that they know if they go to southern Gaza, it's very likely that the territory that they have left will no longer remain, even in nominally in Palestinian hands. We've got the foreign minister of Israel literally saying, we're going to reduce the amount of territory that Gaza has to call its own. I want to get your reaction. Like, is there anything to be done when someone has drunk the Kool-Aid to such a degree that they really believe what the Israeli state is doing is almost a humanitarian occupation where they're trying their very best for these poor citizens who they just want to get rid of the terrorists, they just want to get rid of the terrorists, and then they can all come back and live great lives? I don't think that the deputy mayor of West Jerusalem does really believe the things that she's saying, because you saw it in that sort of crazy spinning Catherine wheel of her last comments, which when pressed on the fact that 48 UN experts had condemned the indiscriminate shelling of Gaza, span around from UN schools are teaching Palestinians to hate Jews, they're being raised to kill Jews, they're obsessed with the right of return, they're anti-Semitic. It really was just a word salad of all of the Hasbara talking points. And I think that that signals a kind of desperation when media audiences are being presented with the truth. Because I don't think that representatives of the Israeli state are or ever have been reliable interlocutors for the truth, whether that's having, you know, accused Palestinian rockets of misfiring and killing five people in Gaza. That was last year in 2022. It turned out to be an Israeli airstrike, or whether that's blaming the children who were killed on the Gaza beach, uh, blaming the fact that the IDF killed them on the fact that there had been militants operating in the area that had been no militants operating in the area. This is a, a web of lies that Israel spins in order to cover for its aggressive and expansionist and I think highly illegal policies which have been about pushing out the Palestinian people. So I don't think it's about persuading someone who genuinely uh, believes the things that they're saying. I think that she's got a genuine belief that the actions that Israel have taken are justified in the interests of Jewish people and the Israeli state. I think she's sincere in those beliefs. But I don't think she sincerely believes that this is some kind of, you know, great humanitarian extended hand to the Palestinians. I think that it's plausible deniability and it always has been. 
I have to disagree. I've seen so many, well, I've been trying to keep tabs, as it were, on people, peers who I would describe as, you know, Zionists or liberal Zionists. And the messages I'm seeing out of them is this fervent need to believe that the project they're part of really is good at heart, that there is a moral high ground. And I I, I really do think that the deputy mayor of Jerusalem has to hold on to this idea that Israel and the project that she believes in has the moral high ground at all times because that's also you know, the idea that the country was founded on this safe haven for Europe's Jews and that it would always hold up a morality and that it would you know, represent this idea of never again, never again would there be, you know, Europe's Jews be subject to the genocide that they were during the Holocaust. And in return, that has turned into this project where of occupation of ethnic cleansing, of persecution of Palestinian people. And the idea that they, you know, if you if you say to someone, this mirrors these behaviors of ethnic cleansing, this, this mirrors, you know, genocides of the past, the denial is so great that like we would never do this. We are we are a state that believes in morality of all else. And I really do think that belief of morality, that belief in almost, you know, perpetual victimhood, no matter what you do, we can never be the aggressors. We can never be the occupiers. Whatever we do, it's always in both self-defense and it's part of this greater mission, the security that is needed for the Israeli people, which they then, you know, the Israeli state tries to conflate Judaism with being Israeli because that provides this protection, this wider protection. If you bring every single member of a diaspora into that mission, especially if they're a persecuted religious minority, that is a huge amount of rhetorical um, protection. We talk a lot about, you know, Hamas using, uh, they say you use Palestinians, they use civilians as human shields. Well, I I think Israel, the rhetorical use of people as human shields for the actual occupying mission, for the actual ethnic cleansing policy that it's pursuing, I really do think part of that is that they have to believe, if you're committed to the Israeli project, the Zionist project, you have to believe deep down, you are doing good. And I don't think, I genuinely don't think that there is, you know, this, oh, this is just a mask, we really know what we're up to. I think I think there really is this committed, the commission, it's when you're radicalized, you commit to something on a deep level. And the reason I think she has that incoherence is because, you know, if we actually went logically through it, those arguments fall apart. But as someone who, I, I wrote about this recently in a piece, but when you are challenged on politically incoherent beliefs, you start just throwing out everything out there. Like, but what about this? But what about this? What about this? Everything that you've lined up previously when you're, maybe you're being challenged in a way that is easier to rebut, that you you know, you have your key lines that you come out with. And, but I think the fervent belief in our heart is that, you know, these things are there and she just when she's actually challenged on them and it falls apart, all she can go back on is the fact that she has this faith that she is a good person belonging to a good project, but none of the evidence around her actually supports that anymore. I don't think that that deputy mayor of West Jerusalem is a liberal Zionist. And I think that the position <laughs> no. of liberal Zionism within Israel is becoming more and more politically marginalised because annexation and settlement expansion is now the mainstream of Israeli politics. The idea of of moving the US embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, I think, really emboldened that set of politics, as well as Jared Kushner's, uh, you know, peace strategy, so-called, which was all about normalizing relationships between Israel and uh, the Gulf monarchies so that the Palestinian cause could effectively lose a, a massive chunk of international support and be sold out. 
all those things have, I think, really uh, marginalized the cause of so-called liberal Zionism in Israel. Second thing is that what has been demonstrated, I think, since the failure of the Oslo Accords and more precisely the failure of, of Israel to uphold or implement the Oslo Accords is that Israel can't really claim to be a safe haven for the global Jewish diaspora anymore. It is evidently a hell of a lot less safe for Jewish people than living in the UK or living in America or living in other European countries, even in spite of the kinds of anti-Semitism that we've been talking about on this show this week. Um, Jews in the diaspora are safer, measurably safer than Jews in Israel. So I think that you don't necessarily have that right of return wave of migration being driven by liberal Zionists anymore. I think it's being driven by people who are an awful lot more religiously motivated and are people who tend to be on the far-right nationalistic expansionist end of Israeli politics. That's something which has really changed in the last few decades. And so the final point then to come to, which is, well, how do you talk to people who have a very sincere belief in liberal Zionist, Zionism? I think, of course, you can persuade people. And of course, you can talk to them. And I think that part of it has to acknowledge that you know, we're talking about things which are very core to people's identity. The IHRA definition of anti-Semitism said, it's totally anti-Semitic to to conflate, uh, you know, Israel with with Jewish people in the diaspora. And I agree, it is it is totally anti-Semitic to say that Jewish people in the diaspora are are responsible for or answerable for the the crimes of the Israeli government. But I think that what what you can create a little bit more space for is that there is there is I think a very sometimes of very deep connection that comes from, um, you know, a history and often a family history of persecution in Europe and what Israel has represented in terms of a place of safety and a place of democracy. And that's a hard thing to dislodge. But I think that with facts and with empathy, you can begin to persuade people. It's difficult. It's not easy. Um, but I think that one of the things that, you know, if not now, uh, you read a lot about it in, in Jewish Currents, um, you know, Jewish Voice for Peace as well, NAMOD. These are organizations of, of Jewish people in the diaspora, many of whom have gone on that journey. And it's not necessarily that they end up in a place of going, okay, well, you know, that, that means Jewish people don't have a right to live in the, you know, land of historic Palestine. They don't have rights to live in safety in Israel. But it's about really looking at what the basis of that safety is and how you can achieve that, not at the expense of the Palestinian people. I think that, you know, that, that there is a significant minority of Jewish people who have gone on that journey and I think are open to being persuaded. But it has to be done, I think, with extreme empathy for where that position of liberal Zionism comes from, even though I disagree with it politically, even though I've got huge criticisms of it politically. I think if you're going to open up that conversation, you've got to understand where people are coming from first. Yeah, I totally agree. I just want to clarify, I don't think the Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem is a liberal Zionist. It's just a uh, rhetoric I'm seeing running from liberal Zionists all the way down to the Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem, who is obviously 
probably very committed to the Zionist project if she's risen to that political rank in the current political climate that is in Israel. And before we go, we want to leave you with a tiny bit of positive news, which is that despite a ban on pro-Palestine solidarity demonstrations in France, protesters have turned out in their thousands in Paris and have forced police who were going to oppose the demonstration to leave. They are standing there with Palestine. We are standing here, sitting here actually, with Palestine. This show will be back from tomorrow, from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.